I, I looked at a lot of successful people around me uh, and a lot of them were, they had 10 years, 15 years experience, very, very knowledgeable, very respected in what they do. And being impatient, I thought, well, I don't want to wait that long to get there. How do I get there quicker? Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby. I'm very happy to be joined today by Stephen Lee. Stephen is the Senior Division Director at Robert Half, Japan, specializing in cybersecurity recruiting. In 2022, Stephen was recognized as the top biller for the whole of APAC, as well as managing the number one PERM team. Stephen's got a passion for creating a safer cybersecurity community in, in Japan, and he's renowned for his cybersecurity events. So he hosts these events at prestigious venues such as Microsoft, Google, the British Embassy, and Deloitte, and he aims to unite industry professionals to share knowledge and insights. Prior to his successful recruitment career, Stephen gained valuable experience in market risk oversight within the financial markets in Australia. Stephen, welcome. Great to see you again. Great to see you again, too, Well, as well, Mark. So thank you so much for the nice introduction. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to this one. Can you just give a bit of context and share the story of how we know each other? So actually, um, I remember you were just starting out this podcast, and I, I, I think I heard your name from Greg Savage. And I thought, hey, I'm going to reach out to, to Mark and, and book some time with him to have a chat. And I think at that stage, I was just starting out in my business. And I remember, and I remember that conversation, you had a look at my LinkedIn profile, you gave me some tips. And I think having that encouragement early on in my, in my career to say that, Hey, you're on the right track because what I was doing was different. You know, I was, I was spending time on my LinkedIn profile. I was was spending time on building communities and you kind of saw that and you said, Hey, keep doing what you're doing. I'm I'm rooting for you in your career. I think you're going to go someplace. And here we are three years later having this conversation now. So I'm really honored to be here. And, you know, really appreciate that kind little bit of guidance and, and support um, back in the day as well. Amazing. Um, I'm, well, I could definitely tell from our first conversation that you were definitely going places. Um, Stephen, how did you, how and why did you get into recruiting? Because you were in financial services before, right? So I was in financial services. I, I always thought that in my job and thinking about my career, if I stayed in that job, I would be average at best. Um, mm. The kind of people that I was competing with are PhDs, um, math geniuses. And I thought, look, this is, this is the only place I could go. But I felt like my true strength was in a sales role. Um, and actually, before I came here, I actually got helped by a recruiter. And she helped me with my first job transition to a company called Westpac. And she made it look so easy because what she did is she placed me from one market risk oversight role to another in a competitor with a higher salary and a higher position title. And I was like, hey, that looks so easy, right? <laughs> and I remember just thinking, as you know, like that wasn't the case, right? When I first started, um, well, if I take it back to when I first started, uh, in the first six months, I only made one placement. And I thought, well, I didn't quit my job in financial markets for this. And everything started to change when I started to specialize in security and started building communities in this space. Amazing. So are you, I, I know you, are you from Australia or you just spend a lot of time there working? I'm from Australia. You're yeah. from Australia. Okay. So wh why did you move to Japan then? 
So Japan is one of my favorite places to travel. I've been here about six or seven times before moving. And there was always this desire to, to move overseas. I spent some time in Hong Kong on secondment. I think at that time it was like, yeah, let's go somewhere overseas to work and live. A lot of my colleagues in the banking sector tended to go to the UK, but I felt like there was a calling to Japan. And I think the 35 to 40% fees in Japan are hard to say no to as well. Absolutely. I know I've heard that. It's like to us in the UK, that sounds crazy. And, and even in the US where it's, you know, t- let's say 25 to 30% is, is fairly typical. Uh, we'll get into that. I want to. I want to learn more about the you know, about your market and everything and and how it works. But so, you did you move to Japan and get into recruiting at the same time, or were you already were you already in Tokyo? So I was really lucky. So I I, I remember interviewing for a bunch of places while I was visiting, and mm-hmm. uh, with Robert Half, I was at the end of my trip. They 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 were they were open to interviewing. So, but at that stage, I was like, man, I'm pretty tired. I just want to go home. Uh, but we kicked off the interviews remotely while I was still in Australia. Um, I spoke to I spoke to the I spoke to my boss Lindsay Hughes. He was talking about which areas I could fit into, and he gave me the idea of actually going into cybersecurity from that point. Mm. And um, so he's he's the one who had that vision, and I kind of borrowed that intuition that hey, there's a market here. There's something for me to do in this space. Awesome. All right. Love it. So then. You mentioned a few minutes ago that in the beginning, you really struggled at the start and you made one placement in your first six months. Tell me about what was, you know, what, what you were feeling and thinking during that first six months. So I remember my, my boss promised me six months of help when you first begin and no doubt the market always delivers. Um, it, you, you start to get some small wins in the start where, you know, you're, you're getting some interviews and then all of a sudden you're getting some send outs where your candidates are interviewing with clients and then you get to close to the final stage and then all of a sudden things don't work out. So mm-hmm. all, all, you know, you, you build up this imaginary pipeline in your head that, Oh, I think, you know, these deals are going to close, but of course you don't have enough reference points to know that. Well, even if they do get the offer, they may accept another offer somewhere else or things close. So I think in my mind, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, because you don't have those reference points to say, what can I expect to happen next? And that uncertainty kind of, you know, you, you, you do feel that insecurity is like, Hey, is this job for me? Did I quit my job in financial markets to go into this, to just help one person? So a lot of those feelings come up and you think, Oh, what's missing. Right. But I was very lucky to have a lot of colleagues around me to help, you know, help provide those reference points. And I think the thing that I focused on was what I can control, which was, um, well, am I learning something new every day? Am I getting just 1% better in my business? And I really took that mindset and really, really embedded that to, to make sure I'm learning each time, each process, each thing, each day. Uh, and that really what helped got me, get me through that period. That's amazing, Stephen, because this is the point at which a lot of rookie recruiters would drop off, would drop out, right? Because it is, you know, it's a complex dynamic uh, like a lot of people, I've heard this expression so often. It's not rocket science. I hate that expression because it makes it seem as if it should be easy, right? The reality is that, you know, just because something is um, simple doesn't mean that it's easy. So an example I would give is like, let's take running a marathon. Well, it's simple. You just 
put one foot in front of the other and you just run, right? It's, uh, it's not rocket science. And yet actually getting across the finish line is not easy. You know, it's challenging. And it's in recruiting where you have, you know, you're bringing two parties together. There's it's such a complex dynamic uh, system with so many variables. And it, it, I think maybe it's easy to, to do recruiting and be okay, but it's the kind of thing that really mastering it and mastering your craft really, I think takes, takes time and it takes, um, a, a real desire to, to want to operate at that, at that level. So kudos to you for not like, thinking, oh no, I made a mistake and, uh, and dropping out. What, what gave you that tenacity to really stick with it and, and have the, almost the faith that it is going to turn around. You are going to be able to pull it off. Wow. Uh, just on your marathon analogy, but for myself, I struggle with long distance. I consider five kilometers long distance. So it's definitely right. a, <laughs> definitely a struggle. Um, what, what gave me hope? Um, actually seeing a lot of my colleagues. So seeing a lot of my colleagues and what they were able to produce, um, they were, I know, I know some places it's very hard to ask for advice, but everyone opened up and they would tell you that, Hey, this is actually normal. What you go through this almost like trial by fire, where you go through this wilderness of not knowing, are you going to make it? Are you, are you going to make it? Um, everyone goes through that. And yeah. what they, what they held on to was just focus on one placement at a time, um, focus on getting better. Uh, it's just part of the process. So that's what really got me through is their, their knowledge, their wisdom from the people that went before me. So I was really, be- I was really lucky to have that experience shared with me. Absolutely. I think, yeah, having uh, uh, peers and, and role models and, and colleagues and that kind of environment where people are supportive is huge. So you're definitely fortunate to have, uh, have had that support. I remember when I very first started in recruiting, I was a slow starter as well. And I started around the same time as a friend of mine, Brian, who's I'm still good, good friends with. He was one of my first, one of my first friends when I moved to, uh, to the UK. And he was the opposite. He, he was fast out of the gates. Like he had a few deals pretty quickly and, um, which made me feel bad. Cause I was like, oh man, what? Like I suck. Why is he getting this success? And I'm not, but actually the impact he then almost subconsciously started thinking, oh, this is easy. Or I'm like, you know, I'm awesome at uh, recruiting. <clears throat> and the reality is like, there's, as you said, when you, when you were starting out, you did have deals that might've come to fruition, but just, it didn't go in your favor. And <clears throat> he got a little bit of luck at the beginning, right? Where things, things did close. And then he almost got into a false sense of security and took his foot off the gas a little bit. And it was like a rabbit, a tortoise and hare scenario. I was the tortoise. He was the hare. And he kind of fell asleep halfway, you know, and then I, I, uh, I overtook him because he thought it was actually easier than it, than it was. And he didn't respect the effort and the, you know, um, the endurance that it takes to really, you know, make this sustainable and not just have these, uh, you know, peaks of, uh, of production. Um, can you talk us through your now? By the way, I th- I want to give people the full context, Stephen. Like being the top 
biller across APEC at Robert Half, which is a huge global organization. And you've been doing this for how long? Three years now? About three and a half years now, but at the time it was three. At the time, right, is three years. Stephen, it's absolutely bonkers with only three years experience to be the top biller in APEC. Could you talk us through your strategy and and how you how you have accomplished that? It's a great question. So um, I I remember in 2020. So just following on the narrative when things really sucked, I only made one placement, and to make it worse, the 2020 recession hit in. Mm. So that came in, and and management was saying, guys, we need to work harder and we need to work smarter. And I told them like, hey, I'm from Gen Y. I don't like working harder, but I will work smarter. And I, I looked at a lot of successful people around me uh, and a lot of them were, they had 10 years, 15 years experience, very, very knowledgeable, very respected in what they do. And being impatient, I thought, well, I don't want to wait that long to get there. How do I get there quicker? And this idea came to me. And, and I remember when I first started out, I, I listened to Greg Savage and, and his wisdom he talks about this idea of celebrity branding or being a mini celebrity in your, in your marketplace. And I connected that to this idea of how do you build relationships at scale in recruitment because it's all about a business of building trust. And that's when we started doing these meetup events. So we started doing these meetup events. Um, I did the first two in my office. Um, our office sucked at the time. <laughs> and I also made a lot of mistakes throughout the process. So the first, the first, if I take you back to 2020, the first one we did was um, a meetup around hardware hacking. Uh, first of all, I had people too far spread out in the room. The second thing was uh, people who came somewhere in security, there were some people out of security, so the target audience wasn't so fine-tuned. And the third, the, the most fatal mistake I made was I did not have enough alcohol for these cybersecurity professionals. <laughs> these guys literally run on caffeine and alcohol. And fortunately, I didn't make that mistake too often again in the future. But it was a so it was Let, a, it was let a me nice just first pause lesson. here, Stephen, because yeah. <clears throat> so I understand you were inspired by Greg Savage and he talks about building talent communities which I 100% agree with. And and by the way, for all our listeners, I believe, like Greg's been talking about this for years, talent communities, but I believe that community is going to be, or has, you have the opportunity to make it the most important strategy of 2023 is building community and being not a, a vendor or supplier to your market, but being actually in your market, being a leader in your market and being someone who people recognize as a peer, as someone who's bringing value and someone who's actually in in the fabric of your ecosystem, you're very prominent and visible and um, not just, you know, selling recruiting services or looking to recruit people, but you are bringing people together and helping to elevate your industry that you serve. But what it's unusual for someone so early in their career to actually implement what, you know, is quite, could be seen as quite an advanced strategy. Like what, how did you decide 
events. Like I'm going to host events, uh, like meetups. How did you decide that that was going to be your, the, the, the main vehicle for you to uh, build your market? To be honest, um, I'm not so good at creating original ideas. That's, that's my, that's my caveat. I'm very lucky to tap into a network of people who do have a lot of good ideas. And I remember we, I was having um, drinks with Thomas and he's the, he's the person that runs these cyber risk meetups with me. And as all good ideas developed over, over some drinks, he said, Hey, we should, we should do these meetups. And the, the crazy thing was, or the interesting thing was, is that someone else was already doing meetups at the time. So someone else was in this market doing it. And, and do you, um, by someone else, do you mean a competitor or another recruiter? A competitor, or? Another recruiter, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of tells me, number one, that there's demand in this market because people are getting together. But number two, it reminded me of um, the story of Dropbox. Before they came into the, into the marketplace, 100 people were doing the same thing. But we, we thought, well, why don't we do it a little bit differently and add our own flavor? And our mission sort of, sort of evolved from there and said, okay, instead of just getting together and having drinks at a meetup, why don't we get together to give people the platform to share their ideas and best practices? And I'll give you an example of um, one of the conversations <clears throat> that happened during the meetup is people were sharing a bit about um, their security awareness training strategy. So they said, hey, we're working on this security awareness training strategy. Here are the challenges we've faced. Here are the, here are the findings that we're having. And then someone else from another company said, hey, we're actually working on exactly the same thing. Wouldn't it be cool if we got together and actually uh, worked across companies to share best practices on this particular topic, especially because the materials there had to be in Japanese, which can be quite cumbersome for a lot of people who are working um, who, who, are not, who are not native Japanese speakers. So that kind of got me thinking about, you know, the mission kind of evolved into like, we're just getting together as a group of people, but we're really getting together to share best practices. And if I relate that back to one of the biggest problems in the cybersecurity industry is that there is a shortage of talent here in the market. It's not going away. You hear, you hear quotes being thrown around like this 200,000 people short in, in APAC. If you, if you spread that out to the US and global, that number escalates even further. So how do we address that problem when we're not getting enough resources? So I feel like if we share those ideas with each other, that's a, that's a first step towards um, addressing that problem. So you and Thomas, your colleague, were having drinks. You, you brainstormed this idea. I just want to point out to people what you said, which is that there's already at least one other person in your market doing it, but that didn't deter you. And I think that is key because so many, like whatever idea you have, I guarantee you there's someone already doing it, whether it's to do a meetup, whether it's to do, you know, do videos on LinkedIn, whether it's to launch a podcast, whatever marketing idea you have, there is probably someone already doing it, but that doesn't mean you should scratch that off your list and and you know uh, and not go for it because you know maybe you can do it better or maybe you can put your own spin on it and uh, come at it from a different angle or find a way to differentiate what you're doing. Um, so I lo I love that that uh, so just to clarify when you say meetup are you you're not actually are you using the platform meetup.com or you're just using that as a term to you know for this type of event. 
Uh, both. So when we started, it was on meetup.com was the, was the okay. platform. And then we quickly transitioned to LinkedIn. And there okay, are certain benefits of there's sort of certain benefits of using the LinkedIn tool because mm-hmm. it, it integrates better with your audience who are already on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. When um, when you post the event, people can see their friends who are attending because if they click attend, it'll come up in their feed to say so and so is attending, right? So that that gets them thinking. Oh, oh you know, if so and so or Greg Savage is attending, I also want to attend. As well, got it. So right, it, no, it, it kind of cool. it kind of pushes it. It kind of pushes it through other people's feeds more. If I compared to if I copied and pasted a Meetup link into LinkedIn, uh, and the reason for that is LinkedIn rewards content on their own platform instead of if you post things external to it, it will yes. essentially punish you. In, 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 in I agree a hundred percent. So, do you still use the Meetup platform, or it's, you've gone a hundred percent to LinkedIn now? Hundred percent LinkedIn. Okay, interesting. Talk about the evolution of those events and how that has kind of snowballed for you and, and, and what you've learned along the way, Stephen. Um, besides giving, making sure there's enough alcohol at the events, um, the, these events have uh, really evolved into just starting out at our own company, uh, own company's venues to being hosted at other people's venues. I think people are are interested to see you know what's it like at google what's it like at microsoft what's it like at the british embassy it, it, it does create a it does create a different different atmosphere and then it evolved into instead of having just one talk why don't we do two talks and i try what i what i try and do because we typically have them on a friday night mm-hmm. right so it will run start from 6 p.m we will start the official the the you know the the official part of the meetup at six thirty where we'll have the talks and we'll have uh, one lightning talk which is about 10, 15 minutes then we'll have a main talk with twenty minutes with Q and A and we try and wrap up everything within an hour because it's a Friday night people people don't want to be sold anything they don't want to be sitting in a in a lecture that's too long but it needs to be relevant for their marketplace so some of the topics that we have talked about before are are things like um, what are some of the challenges that a CISO has? How does a CISO hire? Um, so we talked about some of the leadership topics, which is some of the expertise that I can bring. But I also mm-hmm. get a lot of the engineers to talk about some of the things that they've been working on. So we talked a little bit about um, software supply so software supply chain security. We talked about um, variant analysis, uh, server side request forgery, and cloud security misconfiguration. And and those were all from people in the community bringing up those topics. After I was going to ask you, that, yeah. hold on. How do you select your topics? And because this is key is choosing something that people are, are actually really interested in. That's going to be, so I think that what draws people to this kind of event, it's going to be number one, some people just want the opportunity to network and it's a bit of a social, it's an opportunity to meet their peers and share ideas. Right. But especially if they're kind of, siloed in their business and they don't have other colleagues to talk cybersecurity with, right? So this is, you're creating that opportunity, but definitely the speaker and the topic are, are huge as to whether someone can be bothered turning up or not, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially if, as you mentioned, if people don't know anyone there, because it can be, it can be quite intimidating. You see, you know, you're going to a new place where everyone, you feel like everyone knows each other. 
But if there's a topic that's interesting to you, you may take that risk to say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go check it out. Yeah. Right? And especially it's on a Friday night too. So you, you might have other, you might have other things to do on that night. Totally. So how, how have you um, generated the topic ideas then? So from a topic idea perspective, just speaking to people in the market, um, you hear what's hot, what's moving. You hear, you know, you speak to people and you feel like, hey, these, these people would be a good public speaker. And I think pe- there would be more people who would be interested in this topic because other people have talked about it as well. So you, you, you do want to bring a topic that resonates with your market. And, the, and, and I think from there, it's just about selecting the best person you feel from that area. Totally. That makes sense. And then how did you get the opportunity to like host the events at Google or the British embassy? So we're very lucky. So my boss is friends with the guy at the British embassy. Okay. And they also had interest. They also had interest in promoting cyber from a, from an embassy perspective. Mm -hmm. And some of the other places, as we started running more of these meetup events, uh, people actually come up to you and ask you, Hey, that was a really cool event. Can we also do the same thing at a Google, at a Microsoft? So it starts to snowball and people, you know, it's not just my event, but they see it as their event as well, where they can contribute and give back to the community. And that's something really special that I've seen in the cybersecurity spaces where people want to do that. Um, That is awesome. Are you worried about keeping your recruitment firm up to date with the latest technology? After all, your clients expect you to be ahead of the curve. But how do you select the right tech for your recruitment firm and make sure that you earn enough new business as a direct result to make back the cost of your investment? Which is why our friends at iIntro provide in-depth coaching alongside their technology to help you get the most out of your investment. They offer an extensive suite of tools, but let's just take one example, their behavioral assessment tool. It's built right into their online system, so you don't have to buy or learn a whole new platform. They also include training on how to use behavioral assessments to improve your pitching technique, while also increasing the longevity of your placements to a staggering 96% after 12 months. For a free demo of iIntro's suite of recruitment tools, including behavioral assessment, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. Remember, when you engage with our sponsors, you also help support this podcast. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained, then follow the instructions to get started. It's so cool how, and and this is something I want people to really, really get, is when you're doing something that, of course, there's a benefit. We're going to talk about like the business benefits in a a minute, but you're also doing something in service to your uh, market, your, your ecosystem. And that there's not an immediate monetary value to you, right? You're giving value upfront in order to build relationships with people that, you know, will come back to you. I mean, it always comes back to you in some way, shape or form, but you're creating something that you almost cannot predict the opportunities or the people that this will attract into your life, into your world, that that's what I found with this podcast. Like it, the opportunities and the incredible people that this has attracted are just, um, every day I'm astounded and I would never have predicted. And I couldn't have, it's not like I set out to 
bring those people because I didn't even know them. I didn't know that those opportunities were available. And so you that's what you're seeing is you're putting something really awesome out there and it snowballs and, and results in things that you almost would have wouldn't have even dared to imagine, right? Like you probably didn't set a goal like when you were having drinks with Thomas, hey, let I, I want I let's host these events at Google, right? Like you probably wouldn't have even imagined that. So talk about the what sort of numbers are you getting along to these events? Um, so the numbers of people that were getting to these events, um, when, when we first started, it was like 20, 20, which is good. 20, I mean, 25, that's, which, yeah. which is a decent, which is a decent amount. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we held our last one at Microsoft and we got over a hundred registrations and about wow. 80 people turned up. So I want, I want to point out two things. Number one, that's 500% more than your first event. I honestly would have been happy with 20 because it's not just about numbers. It's about quality as well. It's quality, the quality yeah. of people that you're bringing together. But, uh, and also the show up rate, is there a, any kind of charge or is it completely free? It's completely free. So okay. the other thing, the other thing that's really great about the community is that, you know, we hosted these events at their venue. They yes. cover the co full cost of it so that it's free for everyone uh, to join. So there's no barriers to entry on that side. So I don't directly, you know, I don't, I don't make anything from it directly, yeah. but in terms of the ROI, I remember when I first started doing these things, people would ask me like, Hey, Steven, what's the ROI on these events? And yes. I'm like, I don't know, bro, it's been like two weeks <laughs> and, <laughs> and you're absolutely right. These, yeah. these conversations kind of this, you, you don't know where these conversations will go. And, you know, um, something, and I might add that something really amazing has happened as well for us is that I was doing this three years ago. And now Robert Half in Japan is actually known for hosting community events. Wow, so all of a cool. sudden we have different teams like the data team, the consulting team, the software engineering team, the executive search team. They've all started their own community events to bring people together as well. So that's something really special that I'm really proud of that that's kind of inspired other people to do it. And it's something, it's funny how, it's not something that I've asked people to do, but they've done it. But the things that I do ask them to do, do it doesn't get done. But, right. but it's exactly. amazing they, what people pick up. The motivation has to come from them to, to, to do it. So really, really interesting. So the, the host company will actually provide, like they'll put on the drinks and the nibbles and all that kind of stuff. Correct. So it didn't, but whereas the first couple, Robert Half had to foot the bill. Was that a... Did you have to really pitch your boss on the benefits to get the, you know, the budget for that? Um, actually, my boss was very supportive. Um, cool. So he, he was very supportive and said, hey, what, what, whatever you need, we'll help provide it. And I, I was very lucky for that because, you know, when you first start out, you're not making a whole amount of, amount of placements. You're not making a whole amount of bank. So to yes. have that support from the company and, and say, hey, we'll give you people to help with running the event too. That was uh, super, super helpful. Fantastic. I love that. So what, um, what do you feel have been the biggest benefits looking back over now that you've been doing this for, how long have you been running these events? So we did, we did two in 2020 and then basically there were some lockdowns in Japan, which made it very difficult to have gatherings of people. Yes, um, of course. And that, and that lasted for quite a while. So that lasted for about a year and a half. Um, and I had to, I had to pivot away to webinars during that time 
Mm-hmm. Um, I had to pivot to webinars, but some of the some of the benefits that we're seeing is that people know who you are without ever having met you, and a part of that is also what you talked about in 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 a previous session where you were being interviewed is LinkedIn posting and personal branding, right? Um, there's this idea called celebrity endorsement. So I always say that the the LinkedIn post that I do after the event is is probably just as important as the event itself because people see people see you with people they know. They could be with uh, famous CISOs. They could be with their friends they used to work with, and all of a sudden there's a sense of familiarity when they see those pictures. And you know, if there's enough pictures of you with people in your relevant market, they'll they'll start to automatically think in their brain that hey, seems like Steven's got something to do with security. It's almost if uh, if I was a, a bodybuilder and I was taking pictures with all these other bodybuilders like Ronnie Coleman, Arnold Schwarzenegger, past Mr. Olympia, people are going to think you have something to do with that industry. Uh, so it's the same thing with how Instagram works as well. Uh, absolutely. So this is really powerful, Stephen. Could you say a little more about um, like how you promote the event like kind of before and and after sure sure so i post the event on on linkedin so linkedin has this new feature called events where you can where you've got a dedicated page to hosting the events and you can see the entire guest list um then most places uh most places are um restricted in the number of people they can host just because of venue logistics and you also had the COVID rules before so then we get people to register via form, and then we run a we run a, we run a lottery to select who who'll be able to come from that, you know, to make it fair. That's um, interesting. And then after the event, after the event, I'll post a picture, and I, and I won't just say, "Hey, really nice event at Microsoft," and thank you all so much for coming. Um, people are looking for some insight. Like, what were the key takeaways? What was your key takeaways from the event? You know, and sometimes if you if if your mind was drawing a blank or you were busy doing other things throughout the conversations, is you can get other people to help fill in those blanks too. So you can ask them, "Hey, um, what are the key takeaways that you took away from it?" So I can post it up. And I, and I, and, I, and I've and I've done that once or twice as well. Um, but they're really looking for what are the key takeaways? What what surprised you? What um, what stood out to you from there? What did you notice? Maybe it's not about the content itself, but what did you notice about the types of people that come? What did people talk about on the side, not just with that main topic? And people are quite interested in, in what you have to say. People are looking for an opinion. And for some reason, people are afraid to share their opinion or takeaways on LinkedIn. It's um, So I can imagine this gives you such a wealth of ideas for other spinoff content on LinkedIn because... You really do have a deep understanding of your market, about the challenges, the, you know, the hot topics and, you know, the key discussion points that are, that are happening amongst, you know, the cybersecurity community. So that means, you know, you can post really relevant uh, stuff on LinkedIn kind of uh, in between in between your live events as well. I think this is so, this is so powerful. For sure. Um, and just, just to, just to add to yeah. that as well, like, um, you know, I, I go to the extreme with this, but my, my life is intertwined with this community where, you know, I'm, I'm new to Japan. 
um, a lot of the friends I have are actually from this community. So we've intertwined, I've intertwined that. Um, and, and to give you an idea that we, we host these events from about 6 to 9 p.m. Mm -hmm. The one at Microsoft went to 10 p.m. because we still had about 50 people there who were like, let's go to second drinks. So wow. from 10 p.m., and this is what mm -hmm. typically happens, from like 10 p.m. Yeah. to 12, 12 p.m. in Japan, we have our third drinks, or second or third <laughs> <Okay>. drinks. <laughs> and then it runs all the way till about 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. sometimes. People are hanging out and we're really like, it doesn't seem like work to me because these guys are like my friends. Wow. That's cool. That's really uh, amazing that you've... I, and this may be a cultural as well. Is this a... It, it, is this a kind of nor the norm in Japan for business social events that, you know, it is quite, um, you know, it, it is quite like drinks oriented and that can go quite late? Or is that, you know, it, it is that would that happen in Australia as well? That wouldn't happen in Australia. Um, in I think just just how culture set up that you would see typically like more of these drinking parties in more traditional Japanese companies and cultures. Yeah. I think, you know, when we're, when we're together, we're just talking about the latest topics, like how is ChatGPT affecting cybersecurity? Right. Or talking about talking about the latest video games, talking about anything as well. So yeah. it's really, you're kind of just hanging out after the event with your friends in that sense. Right. I can see, yeah, like you must get to know people so well compared to a typical recruiter client, you know, or recruiter candidate relationship. Because uh, when would you be spending hours and hours? And obviously, when people have a drink, then they, you know, they're more relaxed. They let their guard down. They're more open, more, you know, um, the, the conversation is more free, free flowing. But like spending, you're spending hours with people. So that must really accelerate the relationship. Absolutely. So this is where you're building relationships at scale, not only at the event where, you know, you're, you're, facil you're facilitating questions, you're facilitating the, the flow of the, the program. So instead of spending one hour with one person, you're spending, uh, you're spending 80 hours in one go in one hour because of, of how many people are there. Right. Um, we, you know, quite often you hear the term that information is power, especially in, in a recruitment game. Quite often, I get to I get the privilege to know what's happening in a person's organization sometimes before they even know what's happening, who's moving, who's leaving the organization. Of All course. that information is quite useful, um, you know, as you make commercial decisions in our role. There's, I just um, there's so much I want to pick up on here. Um, you mentioned that. Because I was surprised you get 80% of people to turn up. Normally, if it's a free event, um, like you, you'd be lucky to get 50% of people to come along, but you're getting 80%. And I think not only is it because people learn about this event on LinkedIn and they see like people they know and they can see that this is a real, this is a high quality thing that... Uh, is worth attending, but also you've made it quite exclusive and you have that lottery where you get more people who register than you have spaces for. So there is a real, um, 
it makes it more special and more sought after to like, oh, I hope I get a place that then if you get a place, you're much more likely to, um, I think you would, you would really make a huge effort to show up unless there was something that came up that really prevented you from coming. So I, I, I think that is, there's, you figured out a lot of nuances, Stephen, which are cool that running events and corporate events is not new, right? This is not a new idea, but you've really, um, tweaked it and finessed it and, and made it so powerful. Um, any other kind of, uh, nuances or, or things that you figured out that you think have made your events really, uh, successful? Um, so one thing that, one thing that I've noticed though, is that you have to be, you do have to be careful on the content that is being Mm -hmm. shared throughout that event. So, you do not want to have like a, a product vendor come in and sell or demo their product because yes. people don't want to be sold something on a Friday night. Right. right. They, 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 they are much more interested in, you know, engaging with something that's relevant to them, whether it's, you know, whether it's a, a piece of work that someone else is doing, like a piece of engineering work and that's relevant to them or yep. it's to catch up with their friends. So it's really about, you know, making sure that structured component is as short as possible, you know, rel- you know, in a, not as short as possible, but it's timely for a Friday night, yeah. which is typically less than an hour for me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, making people feel comfortable um, during those events. So, you know, to be honest, like having 80 people at that event is c- quite overwhelming, right? If you have to manage everything, it is very, very overwhelming. You need to make sure you empower your team empower the local or regular members that come to to do pieces of work so i was very lucky that i have my team there someone to help people with registration and check-in sound check-in mics uh, making sure that people are you know people are distributing and networking with other people making sure that you know it's very hard to talk with people all the time so if i can't spend that much time with someone i'll make sure i'll introduce them to someone before i leave them Right. So it's like, hey, you should talk to this person because they're doing something similar to what you're working on. Well, let me introduce you to that person. And, you know, you're kind of you're kind of um, uh, what's it called? Connector. You're, you're, or... kind of, you're, you're kind of connecting people with common interests together and you, you'll give yeah. them some sort of spark to talk about. Now, now, some of the things that people have said to me is like, oh, but Stephen, what if we introduce all these people who are, you know, clients and candidates are coming to them? What if they go directly for a job? Yes. Right? I'm glad you raised that because I'm sure that's going to be an objection that people have to doing this kind of thing. Yeah. So that that is a, a legitimate concern. Um, what we find in the Japan market, and perhaps this, this is a cultural thing, um, perhaps this is a cultural thing is that people do remember and say, hey, you know, I, I met uh, so-and-so from your meetup. It sounded like the type of work they're doing and the challenges that they're working on are very interesting to what I want to do in my career. So this is what, this is actually, someone said this, someone actually said this to me and they said, what would be the next steps to take this conversation further? Right. And they, they got, they obviously got, they obviously got placed, but I would have no idea that that person was looking for a new job. Right. So it's, it, it opens up these conversations that you weren't aware of. Surely it might be different in some other markets and you might have some sort of slippage where people might mm-hmm. go direct, but also think about, well, what is the opportunity that I'm missing out on if I don't do this? 
Have you ever dreamed of launching, scaling, and one day selling your recruitment business? If so, I highly recommend you speak to Recruitment Entrepreneur. Founded by former Dragon's Den star James Kahn, Recruitment Entrepreneur is the world's leading private equity firm specifically focused on the recruitment industry. They invest in startups and scale-ups and have already backed over 30 founders. There's no reason why you couldn't be their next joint venture partner. James's first company, Alexander Mann, sold in 2013 for $260 million. His second venture, Humana International, he grew with Doug Bugie to over 140 offices in 30 countries before selling to MRI. James and his team are actively looking for ambitious recruiters from across the United States and around the world who want to partner with them to launch and scale successful recruitment businesses. They provide the funding, expertise, mentoring, and back office support to make your dream a reality. To learn more about Recruitment Entrepreneur in the USA or anywhere globally, go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash VC as in venture capital. Book a discovery call with them and be sure to tell them that you were sent by Mark Whitby in the Resilient Recruiter podcast. Once again, visit recruitmentcoach.com forward slash VC. I agree 100%, Stephen. I think people, and this is, I understand where this comes from. And I think a lot of recruiters would feel like, oh, but I'm going to miss out on placements because people are going to meet each other and that will naturally result in them getting together, you know, outside of the event. And I have no control or even, I may not even know, and they may hire somebody as a direct result of the event and I'll miss out on a placement. But what that's the wrong perspective. You need to think about it from the point of view of how many more placement, like it's like, the benefits by far outweigh this the 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 potential for or the risk of losing out on a couple of placements because how many more placements will you make as a result of this strategy than if you had never done it in the first place? So um, I think I think people maybe that's cultural to Japan. I think that in a lot of markets, the client and the candidate may not be so respectful or thoughtful of who, how, how this conversation, you know, how this introduction originated and they may go direct to each other. And, um, I think you need to make peace with that and just not, not, uh, you know, um, worry about it too, too much. Yeah. And there's a certain element of follow-up as well. If, if that, if that is the case, making sure you follow up with each other's people say, Hey, how was the event? Do you have any interesting conversations? And you know, what do you think of this? You just run it by them and they'll probably volunteer that information. Hey, I'm thinking about applying for this company perhaps. And so it does require a follow-up or an outreach to figure out what's what's on that person's mind, what they're going to do next. That's a great point. Love it. Um, that it's not like you leave it, you have the event and you say, okay, see you later. There's like a follow-up process to um, cement those relationships and also get a chance to hear, you know, what their thoughts were of the event and what I, I love it, Stephen. This is brilliant. Listen, I do want to spend some time on you, your career at uh, you know at Robert Half and what else you've you've done to um, to support your team and also to develop your yourself. Uh, could you say a little bit more on that? It's a great question. Um, so that the, there's two there's two parts. One is on the leadership and, and team management angle. The other is on innovation process and tools too. Okay. So first of all, on the, on the leadership side, I actually pay for a leadership coach. Oh, um, awesome. I recognize, yeah, I, I recognize the value in having a coach. Um, I, I know that as a leader, I don't have enough reference points. What's normal. Like 
you know, what you experience as a top builder is very different from what you experience as a leader. So this is where I would pay for someone who was highly referred to me. Um, you, I would bounce ideas off them and they would give me unfiltered, unfiltered and say, Hey, Steven, don't you sound a little bit arrogant when you say this, or don't Mm. you sound a little bit judgmental when you say that? So they really do keep you grounded and they're not afraid to say those types of things, but in, Mm -hmm. in in a respectful way. Um, I found that to be extremely, extremely helpful. And it's, it's helped me navigate some difficult conversations um, about people on, you know, on the team or what I'm experiencing as I step up into leadership as well. Um, you know, for example, you, you'll, feel, you'll know that trying to get change through at, at your peer level is much harder compared to getting change through with the people that you manage directly. That's True. a decent point. And she'll help you navigate that. I also got paired up with a mentor internally within Robert Half. He's a, he's a managing director in Melbourne, and he's been able to give me some more reference points with the context of the Robert Half lens, which has been really helpful too. Um, now, if I think about the team management side, uh, when you do run these events with a team, you do have to change the way that certain models work, right? Because you have, in Robert Half, you have a candidate ownership model. And then you also have a client ownership model. And I tell, I tell the team like, okay, well, by that definition, every single person that comes to those events would be hence like my candidate ownership. But Mm -hmm. I don't don't think that works for the candidate or my team because I don't have enough time to go and follow up individually. So I always say to the team, I'll just reward the person who makes that deal happen. So it's basically, it's basically open if you're the person who's proactive enough to engage that person, even though it's an introduction from me, go and make it happen. Uh, and I also tell them, I also flip the model and say, uh, you know that person, you met a lot of the clients that I know. So t- they typically, I, I own a lot of the client relationships as well. I'll say to them, why don't you do execution for that deal too? So even though it's my candidate that I know from the meetup, it's my client that I know but I'm getting the team to work and facilitate execution. Now, the benefits of that is they're empowered and they don't feel like, am I going to upset Stephen by talking to their candidate or client? They're empowered to say like, what's the best for this candidate? What's the best, what's the best service that I can operate? And they're dealing with a single point of contact. Um, I will help step, I'll help step in when things get difficult when it comes to perhaps things like salary negotiation or a deep concern that a client has about the candidate, I'll step in there. And it allows me to be agile to really play a role where I'm overseeing things and not getting lost in the day-to-day details of execution. And what I'll do is I'll adjust the splits. So I know I can't adjust uh, commission schemes, but I can adjust sales credit. And I'll say to the team, since you did more work, I'm gonna allocate more sales credit to you. And by doing that, we can multiply the impact of how many people we help and serve in the marketplace. This is awesome, Stephen. Um, as you're talking, what the the thing that jumped out at me is <clears throat> a lot of people struggle to make this transition from producer to manager or leader, and because it's a different skill set and it's a different mindset. Um, and what I mean by that is the skills that allow you to do deals and run at a successful desk. Of course, there's some transferable ones, but it 
largely is different than skill set of managing and leading people. And so a lot, we see this with a lot of our clients who they often will set up their own business because they were really successful producers. And then they start hiring people, use the word reference points. They, you know, they don't have those leadership skills. They, they're, they're awesome at being recruiters and, and doing deals, but this is a whole different ballgame is developing as a leader. And if you want to grow a business, then you need those leadership skills. But there's also the mindset shift because a lot of individual contributors who are like top billers can have a little bit of a selfish orientation. And in order to be a really good manager and 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 leader, you do your job is to make your team successful, right? And I've seen a lot of people who don't make it as a billing manager because although they're responsible for other people, they're really still all about themselves. And um, it just doesn't, it just doesn't uh, work. You're, you're absolutely right. And you, you do have to let go because you are now responsible for these human beings, which, you know, you serve in that sense. It's not them kind of serving you in that sense, but it's you serving them. I, I was very fortunate to have some really good examples from my boss, Lindsay Hughes, who's really led by example on that. There's another book by Liz Ryan called Multipliers, where she highlights an example from Mitt Romney. Um, he, everyone wanted to work for his team when he was at, I think, Boston Consulting Group or McKinsey. Everyone wanted to work on his team because people knew that if you worked for him, your careers would grow. So just in the example for my own team is getting them to focus more on execution and deals and being responsible for tricky situations, they learn. They grow their careers. Absolutely. They're not stuck doing a, a single piece of work like you know, I think a lot of other people would just say you're just stuck on candidate sourcing. But all of a sudden now you, you get to you get um, more reference points on difficult things you get to deal with, whether it's salary negotiation, whether it's business development, whether it's public speaking and doing these doing these events yourself. And, and we've seen that happen where my team has proactively started to do a Japanese version of these cybersecurity meetups, right? They're growing in their careers and it's giving them space to say that, hey, I really feel empowered to do this myself and do things. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, Stephen, I, I'm astonished at how much you've accomplished in just three and a half years. It's a little bit like the expression that someone can have five years experience on paper, but really they only have one year of experience repeated five times. You've packed, <laughs> a, you're the opposite. Like you've really someone who... You might look at someone's resume or their LinkedIn profile and say, oh, they only have three years. So they're going to be, you know, still relatively junior in their career. But you've, um, you know, you you have three years on paper, but more like 10 years in terms of what you've what you've actually accomplished. Um, so sorry, that's a really good point that reminds me of. Um, so Robin Sharma, he's um, he's also like a leadership coach and he talks about this idea of compressing time. How do you compress time and learning? And I, you know, even though I only had three years of experience in recruiting, I feel like I've been practicing for about 10 years because I've been reading, I've read over like a hundred books on leadership, communication, um, and team, and team dynamics. So I feel like all that comes back now when I'm implementing it into my game. Absolutely. It's a great, it's a great analogy. Um, are you... Are you in the 5 a.m. club? Is that because that's Robert Robin Sharma's most famous? That's Robin book, Sharma's famous. Yeah, I'm 
I wish I could wake up that early. <laughs> um, I tend to stretch my day. I tend to stretch my day longer because um, I do. I do some other activities afterwards. Um, but something something to work towards. Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, so the f- coincidence, uh, coincidentally, about Robin Sharma, he's from Nova Scotia, the same as me. And he actually went to the same university as me, but he's a couple of years older. So I, I did. I I only heard of him like in the last five years. He wrote the book "The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari." Um, but so I only actually discovered him recently. But then I looked at his uh, Wikipedia and I'm like, holy cow, he's actually he's from the same place as me. So what a small world. Um, no, I, I started with that same book, "The Monk That Sold His Ferrari," back in 2012, and I was listening to his. Uh, podcast daily and, and some of his podcasts i just i listened to like five six seven times um it's interesting because he's a really powerful speaker if you see his videos on on youtube and stuff he's just so polished and and um he's an excellent speaker i found that and i haven't read that one i've read the 5am club and i just didn't get into it i found like because it's told it's like an allegory and it's got it's like told as a story um, rather than as like an, more of an instruction manual, I found it hard to really, uh, get into it. What was your experience same, with that? Same, same as well. Yeah. Same as well. Um, um, but not taking away from his, uh, his knowledge on leadership for sure. Um, Stephen, do you know what? We, we sort of are uh, running out of time to talk about your other thing that you're doing internally, which is, <clears throat> The other thing you're doing internally, which is on the tech side of things and 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 tools, um, so I'm going to suggest, like, let's do this again. Like, I, sure. I I'd love to continue the conversation. Um, this has been so beneficial and so powerful. What I appreciate about you is um, you've been so uh, specific in giving actionable strategies that other people can can learn from and adopt and and i really appreciate that um because a lot of you know people who are successful don't necessarily want to want to share help others and and uh so that's awesome man i really appreciate you and i and i'm so glad that you reached out and told me the conclusion because i i do remember clearly that conversation we had three three years ago and it was only short i think we only talked for 15 or you know 20 minutes um and so it's so awesome to hear back from you about how things have developed since then. Uh, I really appreciate you. I think that's super nice. Like as you as you become successful in your career, don't forget the people that helped you. Uh, so I think it's always nice to just drop them a quick message and say, hey, thanks so much for that advice you gave me. It really got me through a hard time or difficult time. Or because of that, I'm, I'm here where I am now. I think people sometimes forget that, but it's also nice to be on the receiving end that what you are doing is, is making a difference that side um if i was to finish with one uh one thing about events just go, go going back it. to the topic of events um what what makes it powerful and you said you said like how a lot of people come to those events um i think having a mission that goes beyond you as the individual really helps so our, our mm. mission is to build a, a stronger cybersecurity community in japan by giving people the platform to share the best ideas and thoughts um one of the problems that i saw and this was addressed in our uh, senior leaders meetup was that companies there's not there's no strong regulation in japan requiring companies to disclose when breaches occur 
So let's say a company gets hacked, there's a ransomware case against them. Um, sometimes in Japan's size, like we can understand if you don't want to disclose that because it's, you know, you don't want to bring shame to your company. You don't want to, you don't want to release that. So that that's kind of the reality of the, the, the environment, but because that happens, it can hurt other companies who may be vulnerable to a similar type of attack. Mm. So if, because that company didn't share that, Hey, we got hacked and this is how we got hacked. These were some of the deficiencies in our controls, our systems. Other companies can't say like, hang on, we have the same deficiency in our controls. Maybe I should get that fixed. So what we did is we, we, we talked about a topic of called ransomware resilience and we had someone share, you know, share an a real life experience of when their company was hacked. And you could see that the pain in his eyes as he's sharing this experience because it wow. was it was stressful it was he was um he was he had to work like a overnight shift to basically cover because you know when when that happens it's everyone's on deck and you need to have a rotating roster that there's someone available 24/7 to make to make a call on things and so he was able to share pieces of insight that were useful for for the audience and they would also talk about and naturally want to say, okay, this is what I had in my experience. How did you deal with that? It gets the conversation going. So because we've developed that type of mission and, and people are involved, it's not just my meetup. Um, people are really on board with coming and they always ask you, when's the next one? When's the next one? Um, people want to, people want to, people want to be involved. And that's how you can kind of start building relationships at scale. That's how you can start creating something that goes beyond yourself. That's a perfect way to finish off the conversation, Stephen. That's so powerful and such a, it is nuanced, but it's a powerful insight is if you can create a mission that's bigger than yourself or your business, it makes it, people want to enroll in that mission and, and, and support it because they benefit from it as well and they believe in it. So when you're enrolling people on that mission, they're not saying, they're not directly saying, oh, Steven's the best recruiter, or I want to help Robert have to be successful. They're buying into the overall mission that you can share together. And um, I think, yeah, it's beautiful what you've done. Steven, thank Thanks. you so much. And uh, I'll, uh, I'll be watching your progress very closely because uh, I can't wait to see where you go next. Appreciate it. And if just one last comment on our side. Mm -hmm. um, just for all the, all the recruiters listening here, I know you've got a lot of people from the UK and the US. Uh, Japan is a lucrative market where they have 35 to 40% fees. Uh, our company does hire experienced recruiters and value those from other markets to come to Japan. So if you're thinking about, you know, a career here in Japan, we'd love to talk to you. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. Like follow Stephen on LinkedIn, connect with him. It's Stephen Lee L-I. And because uh, A, you'll see the stuff he's doing on LinkedIn, which is awesome. You'll see how he's promoting the events, but definitely connect in with them. And if you want that experience of, you know, developing your career in another country, that sounds like an awesome opportunity. So um, I hope you get some, uh, some interest on that, Stephen. For sure. Thank you so much again, Mark. Good to see you. And um, yeah, I hope to, hope to catch up with you again soon. Wow. That was an awesome session with Stephen Lee. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. My top three takeaways were number one, community. Stephen talked about building relationships at scale. I love that expression by creating a community. And he shared so many key insights on how he's been able to do that successfully. 
Number two, mission. If you have a clear mission that is bigger than you and your company, but is one that your whole market can get behind, then people will go out of their way to help you. This is one I'm really going to be thinking about how I can apply to, to my work and what we do at Recruitment Coach. Number three was regarding leadership. We all know that top billers don't necessarily make good managers. And I think the reason Stephen has fast-tracked his career is because he's taken responsibility for his own development, and he's proactively seeking to refine his leadership skills through books, through mentorship, and through coaching. So community, mission, leadership, my top three golden nuggets from today. What were yours? I'd love to hear from you. Send me uh, a LinkedIn message, or uh, even better, leave a review for the show Uh, sharing what you thought of this episode and what your key takeaways were. We would love to hear your feedback. Have an awesome day. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.